Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and today we are continuing our five-part series explaining exactly how data actually moves around the world. If you didn't listen to the first three episodes in this series, please go back and check out what is the internet, what is the transport network, and what are data centers first, as each of those episodes builds on the previous one. So today, we're talking about the cloud. Our last episode was focused on data centers, but we didn't talk very much about what actually happens on the rows and rows of servers you would find in those facilities. You may have heard this popular saying, there is no cloud, only other people's computers. If you listen to this show, you may have heard me say it, as a matter of fact. Um, and I also like to add that it's other people's wires connecting those computers as well. And this saying is, in a certain sense, perfectly true. Though, as you can imagine, it can get much more complicated than that. What that saying is getting at is certainly accurate. Uh, many of us have this vision of the cloud that is just there. It's something you don't need to think about in terms of its physical presence and location. In fact, as I often say, every time I see a diagram of some kind of telecom or network setup that includes a cloud, I remark that the cloud part is just what we're assuming to be there or taking for granted in that particular view. It's, it's the part that you're not talking about right now. Uh, the way that we could frame the question, what is the cloud, is to ask deeper questions like, where is my data stored? Why is it stored there? Where do my applications actually come from? And of course, the answer to these questions is indeed someone else's computers connected by someone else's wires. But let's look at why there is a cloud to maybe fully flesh out this question. So if we start at the fundamentals, um, why does it make sense to store my data, run my applications, or to do anything else as a service in a place remote from where I currently am sitting or my device is? Well, there's many potential answers to that question, but first there are clear economies of scale to housing many computers in the same facilities where they can share security, power, cooling, network operation centers, security operation centers, etc. Even if that is the case, though, you have to be able to get to them from wherever you and your device are located. So really, the network was the real enabler for cloud computing. So let's think through this network as the enabler with a specific example. We'll use a cloud content provider that everyone listening has likely used at some point in their lives, Netflix. So I was a pretty early adopter of Netflix. I joined the service in the early 2000s. And at that time, Netflix meant a service where you selected a DVD from an online library and had it mailed to your house to be returned a couple of weeks later after you watched the DVD. At that time, the two to three days it might take for a DVD that you have selected to show up at your house in the snail mail was actually similar to the two to three days it would have taken to download a digital copy of that film from a probably illegal peer-to-peer -peer site. And Netflix had the benefit of being a totally legal service. Broadband was pretty slow at that point, and networks hadn't developed to the point where you could get something as large as a movie to your house in less than a few days. So as core and especially local or last mile networks became faster and more robust in the late 2000s, Netflix and other began to be able to deliver video content as a streaming service from central computer servers. Now, this is a consumer version of cloud, but of course, a huge part of the market is getting corporations to move their data and applications to other people's computers. And, you know, they might have different considerations than you and I as consumers. So as you know, Jeff Bezos is one of the richest people in the world um, at any given moment in the top three from, from what I recall. 
What you may not know is that arguably much, if not most of that wealth comes from the cloud, not retail services. Amazon was growing rapidly in the early 2000s, and to deal with some of the challenges of running a massively demanded website, they started the division Amazon Web Services, which has become Amazon's consistently most profitable business segment. So it might be useful at this point to get into some history that we lightly touched on in the Data Center episode. Before cloud providers like AWS, Amazon Web Services, came along, most enterprises had data centers, which they housed their web servers, corporate databases, applications, uh, uh, DevOps, and whatnot on computers on their own campuses or their own buildings. So depending on the scale, a closet in the office or maybe a huge basement on a large corporate campus was where most of the compute, data storage, and DevOps happened at any given corporation. Also at this time, most software was run directly on a device. What I mean by that is that you had to download the software from some storage device onto the computer that you were using. So for those of you listening to this who are under, I guess, 35 or so, we used to order software and maybe have it delivered in the mail or actually go out to a physical brick and mortar store and buy a disc or maybe a CD, uh, like an optical uh, a disc that you'd put in an optical drive. And then you would download the application onto your computer and use a long string of letters and numbers, a key that came in the box with the software in order to activate the software on that device. And then of course you could never activate it on another device or you had a limited number of those keys from the same disk. So while centralized computing wasn't a new idea at this time, by the late 2000s and early 2010s, the network was robust enough and central or offsite data centers were emerging to host software centrally and then use it over the internet as a service. Now, it's hard to imagine storing applications or even data locally on your device in most circumstances today, uh, but it was very much the way that everything worked until we got to this new model. Of course, as data, software, content, and all things digital left the corporate premises, they don't just go to an imaginary place, the cloud. As we discussed in the data center episode, where those data sit matters to the users and systems relying on them because of something called latency, which latency is just the amount of time that it takes for data to get between your device and you and wherever it is stored. So some applications are very sensitive to latency, video especially, video calls, things like that, where real-time compiling of all those ones and zeros really matters. Other applications like, say, reading an email are very insensitive to latency. Um, But even still, any application needs to be able to communicate with its server and uh, being able to be physically closer to that server is going to lower your latency and make your applications perform better. So over the years, cloud providers have expanded their footprints to locate these services around the globe and enhance performance for those who weren't maybe sitting near a large internet market like where I am in Northern Virginia. That is a little bit about what the cloud is and how it developed, but to take a deeper dive into the current cloud market, I'm going to enlist the help of my colleague, Patrick Christian, who is our principal investigator for cloud services, and make sure we nail down some key definitions and concepts that I am not personally an expert on. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yes, my pleasure, as always. Um, Yeah, so Patrick, as you know, I'm going through trying to explain all the different areas of telecom, and we're on the cloud today, which you are our 
resident expert, principal investigator on all things cloud. And there's a few things that I wanted to clarify with you to make sure that I was telling the right story. So that's why you're here. Okay, great. Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to start out with something that's a, a major buzzword for the last 10 years. And it's 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 not it's not one of those buzzwords that kind of the hype dies down because it's expanded to everything else, right? So everything in the IT world uh, is now as a service. Um, but I want to I want to break down what kind of as a service actually means and get some examples for for each of the the key cloud ones, right? So, um, sure. but let's just first start with you know as a general concept, what does as a service mean? Because in a certain sense, like what isn't as a service, right? So, right. And what, what, what did, why did we need to start calling things as a service? Um, basically to um, virtualize or put everything in the cloud. So um, just starting very basically, instead of having your laptop in front of you or your computer and you're sticking in a, um, um, a disk with all the data on the disk, um, or software on a disk to load it up. You don't have that anymore. All of this is done somewhere else on servers that are not in front of you. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is the as-a-service part of it. Is it's no longer in front of you. You're kind of renting or going uh, using somebody else's server instead of your own. Right. So um, there was in, a, there uh-huh. was a time when we owned things, whether that was right. whatever software, networks, and and now we're sort of more um, using them on an as-needed basis. Yes, exactly. And and this is the idea of, of like everything is a service. Um, but I mean, I think we should focus more on the the three big ones. You know, the right. software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and platform as a service. But I mean, you hear a new as a service daily. I Honestly, yes. I had not heard this one before. Just yesterday, um, I was looking up uh, Netflix, and we were talking about Netflix, and it was referred to as not software as a service, but movies as a service. So Maz. Maz. M-A- right. so, and that's literally anything you do on the cloud that is virtual, that is not in front of you, that is using servers elsewhere as a service. So sure, why not? Maz. All right, so maybe if we break it down, uh, as a service means kind of, Two things at the same time. One, it's it's that it's it's remote from you. It's hosted somewhere else, uh-huh. and you you consume it on a sort of lease usage basis rather than own the physical. So, movies as a service is actually a great example because you would have owned a DVD, it would come in the mail, and you put it on your shelf. And it, whereas now right. you watch a movie as a service hosted on someone else's server, and and you watch it just on an as needed basis. Right. Exactly. All right. So the physical is gone, and now you can just do yeah. it. To- Virtually, that's great. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So then let's go through them. You, you mentioned the, the, the sure. big three. So I yeah, think most people three. know SaaS, but what, what, what does it exactly mean? Yeah, SaaS is, I mean, uh, close to what we were just talking about. But I think for me, uh, when I first started seeing the word SaaS and thinking about what that means, it's funny. Everybody says Salesforce. That's true, Salesforce. But it's, it's also, um, uh, for example, Microsoft Office or Google Workspace, where mm-hmm. where before you would have the little disks and put them in, we get you know your updated uh, uh, Microsoft Office, and then you load it up, and then all of a sudden you don't have to do that anymore. It's you know hosted someplace else, and you can just in uh, updates are automatic and all these great things. So right. um, I think that's where we see software as a service. So um, you are uh, consuming software that are you know run on others other people's or other servers hosted someplace else. Um, and then the infrastructure as a service, um, this I think is the more classic, this is what telegeography really follows. Um, here as, we're looking at the cloud. The, yeah. yeah, this is yeah. for us more the cloud where we're really talking about the infrastructure. Um, and these are services, it's infrastructure, but it's services actually that replace kind of your computer um, mm-hmm. or your own server. Uh, services like compute, storage, mm-hmm. and networking. Those are kind of the big three un- under infrastructure as a service. So gotcha. the compute part, the co- compute, your processing power, you do that um, in the cloud, in a data center, mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, same thing with storage. You're storing your files, your data, your content, etc., on on servers in the cloud. So a cloud service provider's data center. 
Um, so if and, I could interrupt you for a second, would that yeah. would that include like email? It seems that that was always the most classic. Like, I mean, there was a time when a corporation would have a server in one of their buildings, and that's where email were sitting, right? And and yeah. would, would email fit? It's it feels like software. It feels like an application, but there's a lot of like data. Is does that fall under uh, infrastructure? Sure. It will. Well. Um... You, it's not a service that you would run on infrastructure as a service, but it, it, the services that you offer for compute and storage include. I see. Uh, yeah. I see. So it's more like the, the fact of holding any kind of data is the infrastructure part. Right. And if you look at like just web hosting, that's mm -hmm. infrastructure as a service too. Right. Right. So all of these, um, basically, when you have compute, storage, and networking. Um, yeah, in, this is more the infrastructure as a service, um, kind of more the, um, bigger picture, more than just the software itself, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. It um, does. But, but what uh, doesn't make sense is what the difference between that and platform is to me. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here to answer it. So. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. always, that's a tricky one, um, because it's something I don't think everybody's familiar with, except for, for example, um, uh, developers like application developers, they'll right. understand platform of a service as a service the best because really what you're doing there is it's like you're renting the hardware to develop mm -hmm. your apps in house. Right. So no longer right. you rely on your own hardware within your own IT department, etc. You're kind of leasing this or using somebody else's hardware to develop these apps. So really, you come along with your data and your applications and everything else you are kind of consuming as a service. So mm -hmm. I've, I've heard the analogy of like renting a car. Mm -hmm. uh, you rent a car, uh, you don't own the car, you don't have to worry about investing in the car, maintaining the car, etc. You rent the car and you drive the car. Okay. Right. So, and then you put the gas in and you drive the car and that's all you need to worry about. So, right. In that way, and these are these are um, services like AWS is uh, Elastic Beanstalk or Google uh, Google App Engine is mm -hmm. are some of the services that they offer that are PaaS. But mm -hmm. like you said, it's not one that kind of your average person knows what the heck that means. But if if you're in DevOps, it means a lot, right? So. Yes, yes, you understand it a lot more. Gotcha. All right, and then last this isn't neatly in the cloud category, but it's oft talked about. Um, what, what, just give us a quick sort of definition of, of network as a service. And, and with the caveat that I have talked a lot about NAS on the yeah. show, we don't need to go deep, um, but just, just a quick uh -huh. definition in case someone is listening to this and has heard that term thrown about. Sure. I, I guess you could see it as, it's kind of like a cloud service model for customers to... Um, rent network services. Okay. Mm -hmm. So NAS allows customers to operate their own networks without maintaining or owning the actual network infrastructure. Right. Um, and we see this a lot, especially in the cloud side. Um, we see that like a NAS provider will offer a range of transport and cloud interconnection services. So connecting to the cloud, the, for example, from point to point, transport to get you there, to get you, for example, to an on-ramp, which we'll talk about later, I believe, um, right. or connecting um, within the cloud or to the cloud as well, depending on the provider. Got it. Right. But it, it very much, in, in some cases, it fits into that sort of cloud world because it's between data centers, connecting to hyperscalers and all that. And so on that note, hyperscalers. So hyperscalers is to me anyway, a, a more recent term for cloud service providers, right? Uh -huh. um, uh, although it's, it's, it's pretty evocative, so it makes enough sense. So, so who are the big hyperscalers? Um, a, a lot of these will be, you know, sort of household names if you're in the telecom business at any rate, but certainly not necessarily if, if you're not, right? Um, uh -huh. and what, do they, what do they actually provide for corporations, whether it's, you know, a Soho small business to you know, Fortune 500 kind of multinational? Yes. Okay. So hyperscalers. We'll is, that a, is that a big enough question for you? <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. hear in your uh, pause. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll uh, simplify it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, um, 
Let's see. So the hyperscalers, the content provider, we call them also content providers, OTT, etc. Um, I guess the the three the household names that we all know very closely um, are of course AWS, Amazon Web Services, AWS, Microsoft, and Google. We know these companies for other things besides the cloud, but within the you know telecom industry, of course, we know them as the major um, cloud providers. And these are all the three of the U.S.-based ones. Now there are. And two I should say, ones. just just to interject in case people run across it, Microsoft is often referred to as Azure in this context. And I've heard uh, what Google has an uh, an acronym that people often use for it. Maybe you can remember what yeah, it is. Yeah, there's like the, it's Google GCP Cloud. Or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gl- yeah, GCP, Google Cloud Platform, and yeah, right, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then there's in Microsoft. Yeah, the the brand for cloud services is um, um, Azure, and um, and then the two other American kind of smaller um, in scale than the three bigger hyperscalers are are IBM and Oracle. And mm-hmm. Oracle has been moving up a lot recently, building a lot. But they come from a background of working um, uh, specifically with enterprises, kind of on a smaller scale, but Mm -hmm. um, providing, in a sense, kind of a a dedicated cloud um, by accessing their their services, their their software, their their applications, et cetera, um, by enterprise. So from the enterprise point of view, they're probably more familiar with the Oracles and IBMs originally than the Mm -hmm. AWS, Microsoft, Mm -hmm. and Google for a lot of these cloud services. And then um, growing concurrently and uh, just as large uh, in in China and in Asia, in globally, but that's where they had their mm-hmm. start, of course, are the Chinese-based um, providers Alibaba, Huawei, and Tencent. Those are all the. Those are kind of the the big, the big. How many are there? Eight, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we can add to this group growing number of um, of companies like. Akamai now, they they acquired a cloud company and now they're offering cloud services very similar to the other hyperscalers. Um, but also there's there's a ton of smaller, more um, um, focused on kind of niche uh, areas like GP, right now the, the big GPU clouds are huge, like CoreWeave and Lambda and uh, these mm-hmm. types of companies, but mm-hmm. really, these even though they exist in their you know a lot of hubbub, these are very much a smaller scale than the the hyperscalers like um, right. you know, AWS, Microsoft, Google, and Alibaba, Huawei, and Tencent. So, so they have like a particular niche in the market, but it's it's just nowhere near the scale that the, right. the big eight or so have, right? Exactly, and there are a lot of smaller regional um, cloud providers as well, mm-hmm. um, and. And basically, so what they were doing that, I think that was your second question, yeah. just very easy, you know, simply is um, for the larger companies anyway, they're replacing the data centers and, and actually, you know, the on-premise data centers for a lot of these mm-hmm. companies um, and all those data center services that they had. Um, and also now in the, in the last few years, anyway, they're replacing um, carrier, carrier provided WAN networks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of virtualizing mm-hmm. all of this and, um, you know, taking that off their hands of maintaining their own data centers or working with these carriers to do this. Now they can all do it through a cloud service provider and using their hardware and not their own, et cetera, like we've been talking about. And so out of those categories that we've talked about, all, most of these cloud providers are offering all three of those, SaaS, uh, IaaS, and, and PaaS, Right. Um, yes, uh-huh. but the universe of SaaS providers would be much bigger than what we would call cloud providers, right? Correct, correct. There you have every. It's the. I guess the thing that stands out with the hyperscalers is is that they offer the um, the networking part. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. some of the storage, but storage can be in hosting. Well, hosting, etc. But I, I, I would say I guess it's more the networking part that really makes. Uh, it stand out from kind of the SaaS providers right. and the web hosting companies, et cetera. Right, who are just just providing a particular application or suite of applications and not, right. not the, the infrastructure, as it were. Right. Right. 
All right. So on that infrastructure, um, maybe you could break down some cloud terms. Um, I, these are ones where every time I talk about them, I have to go and check and make sure I'm saying them right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So so in the way that we talk about cloud at Telegeography and in the way that the industry often talks about it itself, you have these things, regions, zones and on ramps, um, and especially in the idea of the geography of the cloud. Um, right. uh, what 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 do each of those three things mean? Yes. Um, and very often you're probably right, even if you don't get it spot on when you're talking about it, because a lot of these concepts have evolved and they're, they're much more general meaning now than they right. maybe originally were. So right. um, it's these, a lot of these things have been stretched. So, um, but in general, and this is super confusing, but it's known, we talk about cloud regions and this is how, you know, many of these companies talk about it is a cloud region is a, um, Usually physically, it's a grouping of several data centers, mm -hmm. usually three, that are all um, kind of had isolated, uh, you know, logically and physically separated. So um, for redundancy, so mm -hmm. failover. So if one goes down, you have two others, et cetera. Right. Um, so a region would be a grouping of cloud data centers. Okay. And... That also gets confusing because people are you. You talk about the the ge the geopolitical region, or is it the <laughs> that is not the way we usually use the word region? I would call that a cluster. Right. If if we could go back in time and and name that right, you know? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's the zone. A zone right. is basically a data center within the cloud region. I see. So okay. zones would be the individual. In, in it doesn't have to be a, a physically separate as in in different locations. Ideally, it is, but mm -hmm. it could be maybe on two different buildings in the same um, campus. But right. of course, the cloud providers hold this all very closely to their chest. So we don't know exactly how these things are set up. We can guess right. some of it, but not everything, of course. And that's for yeah. security purposes mainly. Or correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then actually to add to the zones, there's something new, newer, um, it's called a local zone. Hmm. And this is like a zone. It would be a data center or at least a part of a data center or a grouping of a big grouping of servers in a, maybe a carrier neutral data center that's closer to the end user that, uh, hence the local, um, hmm. mm -hmm. that, provides certain services that are latency sensitive. Um, but AWS has the official local zone, but um, Google offers something very similar to it, low latency data centers, which is often, you know, which is very close. Uh, it's the same function. Okay. And that, that's getting us really close to Edge. And I I had predetermined that Edge was too deep a dive for this uh, high-level episode. So we'll leave that for... Yeah. For it, yeah. But it, it'll come yeah. up in what we talk yeah. about. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. And, and then finally, there's the on-ramp. And the on-ramp, and this is one, another concept that has been stretched, you know, it, originally, and this is how we see it, it's the location where... Um, you connect your network to physically connected to um, a cloud provider. So this mm -hmm. would be in um, a carrier neutral data center and right. you connect through a service like for AWS, a direct connect or for Microsoft Azure, it would be express route and Google, or for Google, Google cloud interconnect. They each have a different name, but basically it's the physical connection, doing the cross-connect maybe between your edge routers and you're connecting into their network. That's mm -hmm. where the on-ramp is. But for us, if you talk to, for example, a carrier and say, and they say, hey, we have an on-ramp to AWS. And we're like, oh, great. You know, you just get to this pop in this data center. But hey, AWS doesn't have any you know, um, uh, presence there. What are you talking about? Oh well, we if you're in this, you connect to our network, and then we bring you to the data center where the actual interconnect happens. Right. So they'll call that an on ramp, but to us that wouldn't be an on ramp. But I guess you could distinguish that as a remote on ramp versus uh, <laughs> a, you know, a primary on ramp is right. the one where you actually the action occurs. 
It's an on-ramp to get you to the on-ramp, basically. Right. You know, yeah. that that's a fair enough concept. Sometimes yeah. you have to, you know, mm-hmm. get an, an on-ramp to a highway that takes you to the highway you need to be on. Right, <laughs> so, right. exactly. An on-ramp yeah. to the on-ramp. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. So th- that that is helpful. On-ramp kind of makes the most sense of those to me so far. So, <laughs> um, But I want to talk about how those have developed over time geographically. So, so specifically what I'm thinking of here is we have a fantastic map that you created with, uh, I assume Larry, Larry, our map team and whatnot that, that shows yes. the development since like 2006, I, I want to say of, uh-huh. of where on ramps zones and regions were actually located. Take us just briefly through that kind of story. Um, okay, but to take you through that story, I kind of have to. I'll go through the story of the the different hyperscalers and when they first started to build yeah, out, etc. Yeah. Okay, um, so first, like you said, it all started in 2006 when AWS launched their first cloud region, um, and Microsoft wasn't far behind. Uh, they launched their first Azure region a couple of years later in 2008, and a lot of the original. Uh, data centers and on-ramps were located in kind of good, dense markets in the U.S. and Western Europe and and in Asia as well, um, where kind of the low-hanging fruit, where um, prices were already low on infrastructure pricing, like connectivity, et cetera. Um, They could build these huge data centers, um, maybe lower pricing um, or, or close to big urban areas. But you see these areas roll out kind of in the northeast, um, kind of near Virginia, the D.C. area, and in the um, and in the west, maybe a little bit north or more in the California-ish regions, and then in Europe, kind of U.K.-ish region. This is where you see it all start. But it right. grew it grew very quickly. But um, uh, in that, I'll, I'll pop over to Asia. And although there were already a couple of um, AWS and Microsoft um, regions in Asia, um, things really started to take off Asia when Alibaba launched their first region in 2011 and Tencent in 2012. Mm -hmm. And of course, they built a lot in China, huge amount of uh, cloud regions in China, but they very quickly spread throughout um, um, Asia at a faster rate than I'd say AWS and Microsoft. Since then, um, the cloud, kind of the race for cloud expansion with the CSPs um, has been, you know, like exploding in terms of number of data centers that have been um, rolling out. By 2014, AWS and Microsoft had already launched, I think, 10 and then 20 or something like that, very close to that. Um, In in 2014 alone, I think Microsoft launched 10 new regions. Um, And then... Who joins the fray in 2015? Google. Google launched their regions, uh, for in fact, and then Huawei joined it about the same time. And for these first like seven, eight, nine years, um, they averaged about four new um, cloud regions for the big, big providers, two or three, two or three a year. And then after that, they were averaging 15 to 20 new cloud regions a year up until pre-COVID. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about where, like I said, low-hanging fruit, it was funny. You would hear the term all the time. The cloud is ubiquitous, you know, da 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 But, but it's yeah, in it's, five locations. <laughs> right, right. It's ubiquitous yeah. if you live in North America, Western Europe, right. or uh, East Asia. Because mm-hmm. um, that's basically where everything happened. And then Sao Paulo in, in South America. And that was the only presence in Latin America for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But there was almost nothing in Middle East um and africa and parts of south asia almost zero um but you know over time now we're seeing these are the big build areas where we're seeing a lot more data centers being built Um, and and the primary reason that we need to expand cloud presence like that is is latency uh are are there other reasons yeah i mean primarily it's it's latency it's um uh the game is always to get the content closer to the end user because mm-hmm. when um, uh, when these services work better or perform better, they're consumed more. Yeah. So you always want to have, you know, then you have a happy customer, they consume more, works better, et cetera. So, you know, the name of the game is always trying to get 
um, content or your network closer to the end user. Right. That makes sense. All right. So a little bit more on geography. The The last episode um, in this series was all about data centers. So now we're talking about kind of what happens in data centers. John Yembo and I certainly talked about how data centers themselves are distributed geographically. We didn't really get too much into um, the difference between a neutral data center in which a cloud service provider is located and a data center that is a proprietary uh, um, property of the cloud service provider. So, so why are there those two distinctions and, um, and, and kind of why do hyperscalers even need their own sort of dedicated facilities like that? Um, okay. Yes. Well, Especially at the beginning, what we saw is a lot of proprietary builds in these, what I think um, most people know about are these huge campuses where they build, you know, just outside of um, um, urban areas, a little bit in the countryside, maybe where land is a little cheaper, etc. Um, so these are kind of the core regions, the core data centers that they build out. Um, and if you're looking at um, okay, wait, one more step. So you have that. And then, like you said, there's also, they have presence. A lot of the hyperscalers have presence within carrier neutral data centers. Um, it, they don't own the buildings, et cetera, AWS, et cetera. They're, um, kind of leasing space within the data center. Okay. So why these two things? I think if we look from a customer point, a customer point of view, what we're really looking at is latency considerations, okay? Mm-hmm. These large proprietary campuses, they're usually far away or farther away from the end user. So mm-hmm. if everything is running there, um, these cloud services will be affected by latency, basically. It depends on the service you use. Some are very highly high, highly latency sensi- sensitive. Other ones aren't at all, so it doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. like storage or something like this, it doesn't matter if you don't have it instantly, um, but for other uh, for other services, you really need the the low latency. So you have a lot more building um, closer to the edge, and the edge would probably be a a, a carrier neutral data center where all other networks are connected, and that's right. probably kind of the closest you're going to get to the um, end user. But of course, you have to be in every you know. Uh, every uh, city to get right. closest to those end users. So you're building out a lot of edge. Gotcha. So I now that I hear your answer, my question is probably the, the wrong way around. It should have been not why do they have their own facilities if they can all be in the neutral facilities, but rather the other way around. Why bother going into the neutral facilities when they already have their own big facilities? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I, I just talked about the customer point of view, but if you take it mm-hmm. from the network development um, point of view, um, y- you're looking at, okay, uh, the pros and cons. I mean, a lot of this is kind of the greenfield versus brownfield. Do you build right. your own huge data center or do you use somebody else's? So mm-hmm. um, if you're looking at network development or building out your network, okay, what are the pros and cons? Um, the proprietary data centers, of course, they cost a lot more. They take a lot longer. Maybe there's more risk because you're doing it from building it from scratch. But the pros are you build it exactly to your own, you know, like specifications. It may be higher cost, but it's very flexible. It's built to your needs. So you know how to build it to scale, et cetera, for security, um, all of this. So, um, and yeah, I think a big thing to keep in mind is the scale part of it. They can really build to scale. Now, um, so why even go into the kind of brownfield or the existing carrier um, carrier neutral data centers? Um, I mean, one aspect that, aspect of it is it's cheaper, you know, but it is less flexible. Mm-hmm. But you're also limited to what your provider offers. Okay, but right. I guess the pro is um, it's a lot lower risk. You know, because it's already there. About, they, they, think, someone else owns it. Yeah. Yeah. Think and also think about not building in the U.S. Think about building in, I don't know, Tanzania or mm-hmm. Bolivia or something like this, where you're not familiar with um, the local or national laws and regulations. Right. Um, that's a lot to take into consideration. 
Um, and this occurred in Africa and basically a lot of these different areas where um, doing a proprietary build, there's a lot of risk and um, a lot of um, high risk because you're not sure of the outcome of the build. You're not right. sure of the laws. You try to do all your research, et cetera, but there's example after example where um, um, these projects have been put on hold or have taken twice as long as they should have, et cetera, because of um, uh, problems like that. Whereas right. if you have a, a, a data center that's been there for 10 years, 15 years, um, you don't have to worry about that. You just put mm -hmm. your, bring in your, um, your servers and, buy your racks and, and build out. Of course, the scale is always going to be a problem, right. but the, kind of that's the pro. And, and so there, uh, you don't, maybe you don't want to do a huge proprietary build in, for example, Tanzania, um, mm -hmm. but you can get away with a, you know, a local build out in uh, a much smaller scale build out in um, uh, an existing data center. Right. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. All right, you you brought up Akamai earlier, um, which I've always known as a CDN, and uh, it kind of occurred to me when you brought that up, them moving into the cloud space, that that in the the whole rest of this episode, I in my solo part didn't really talk, uh, didn't talk at all really about um, CDNs and and what role they played in kind of cloud development. Could you just tell us real briefly what a CDN is and and how that relates to the cloud? Sure. I mean, start off with uh, almost all of the big cloud providers offer CDN service. So right. it is a cloud service. In addition to the many, 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 many CDN um, uh, companies, uh, all the cloud providers also offer um, their own cloud service or they partner with a large provider like Akamai or Edgy or mm -hmm. somebody like that, that they um, provide this service. Um, but caching... Um, is, let's see, is basically, um, you're, you're talking about latency again, you're storing content temporarily, uh, in a server that's closer to the end user. So it, uh, it works better or you can access it mm -hmm. more quickly. So for example, if a user requests content, um, the content will be pulled if it's not already there from a source server and then pulled into the cache, a server that's closer to the end user, and it will be stored there. So take, for example, and this is a great, uh, a great example like um, in, for the results is like in Africa, caching was a, a huge, you could really see the positive um, aspects of, of caching very um, strongly in, in Africa. So for example, you have a, somebody's on their phone and they're, they want to see a video, you know, that, I don't know, they, elephants sliding down hills or something like that. This was a big thing. <laughs> um, and uh, so, or, or, you, you know, just the latest song by whoever. Okay. Right. You try to watch the video. If the video is being served out of say Google data center in Europe, you know, just the distance um, to arrive at your phone will mean it's a very slow video. Quality right. will be terrible. You won't be able to watch it, or if you will, the, it'll just be terrible. But if this video is pulled into a cache that's into a, a data center in a, in a server that's very close to the end user, hey, guess what? There's a much lower latency, the video works, and the internet works. So really, caching is what makes the internet work, Okay. You're moving so it's like demand-based uh, movement of of content, essentially. Right. So you have content that may be stored more centrally somewhere, and it's being distributed through um, um, CDNs, through um, content uh, delivery networks. Oh, good. We hadn't defined it yet. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> content delivery networks. Yeah. There we um, go. It's moved closer to the end user. The content is moved from a, a source server or origin server to the cache, and then all of a sudden it works. And hey, guess what? In Africa, when all these caches started to go in, a lot of these companies didn't have big data centers or even big presence in Africa. So a lot of these services didn't work very well. And then once the, the Akamai and Google caches started going in, hey, Everything started working very well. And demand and suddenly looks what? really strong. Yes. Right? And then people mm -hmm. start consuming like crazy. And then um, 
the networks get better, the the traffic grows, etc. So, um, so yeah, so the yeah better performance. It really CDNs is what make the the um, networks work or the internet work better. That is is excellent to know. All right, so one more thing, uh, Patrick, you've been. Very informative. Thank you. One more thing I, I want to touch on before we wrap it up is just um, you touched on this earlier, but how do companies actually connect to their cloud providers? So, for, you know, for, from a consumer standpoint, it seems kind of straightforward. Like I, I go to youtube.com and I, I stream a video I want from the Google server closest to me or, or the cache, right? Um, or I open up the Google sheet I was working on, uh, you know, for my kids Christmas list and, and, and sign in with my password and, and, uh, you know, multi-factor authentication or whatever. But as an enterprise, you might sort of, um, you need a, a, a more holistic connection. There's a lot more data moving through and it, it's more complicated in terms of authentication and whatnot. So, so if, if I'm, uh, a, whether a you know, medium sized business or huge multinational, how do I get from, my internal users, my employees to their cloud services? Yeah, I mean, uh, really this, you can get to it the same way you would, um, as you just explained, you can get on the internet and-, and Yeah, you, you log know, on to your Google cloud yeah, account, you just right? You get know? into yeah. your account and go on the dashboard. Yeah, it's, you can, of course. Um, but what happens is like for a lot of organizations or especially larger organizations is, you may want a connection that has uh, consistently good performance or you need security, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, then you would have uh, something, a dedicated in- interconnection. So um, with a dedicated interconnection, and these are services like Direct Connect for AWS, Express Route, or Google Cloud Interconnect. These services where you're connecting at, um, you have a, a much larger connection you have like a you can have a 10 gig or even up to 100 but 10 gig is usually you know a pretty big uh, connection to this mm. network so it's a dedicated connection you don't have to go through the internet so performance is a, isn't an issue and um you know if you have huge workloads it's better to have a lot of capacity connectivity also you try to connect you know depending on what your network is and where your locations are you can connect um, closer to the regions where you want to, you know, you have most of your workloads, et cetera. And, and that's um, where the location of your CSPs on ramps really start to matter to you as a yes, company. Yes, that's where that matters, definitely. So this is, that's the dedicated interconnection. Now, if you don't need 10 gig um, right away, you can always go through a partner dedicated interconnection, which is, you know, a partner, direct connect, partner, express route, et cetera, where what they do is they have the 10 gig connection and then you can break that into smaller increments and only get like a hundred meg or a one gig um, um, connection uh, to the cloud service provider. Um, And then there are other ways too. These, those are probably the two most common internet and a dedicated interconnection, but there are, um, you can peer with the, the um, cloud provider yourself directly, or you can peer through a carrier if you don't have your own ASN, your, your own network. Um, you can also uh, connect over the internet via VPN, but the big drawback for a VPN connection is just a smaller amount of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, from the cloud, I'm sorry, from the data center operators, you can do connect to an exchange. They used to be called cloud exchanges. Now, mm-hmm. not as many people call them cloud exchanges, but <laughs> um, an exchange or a fabric. You can connect to a fabric to connect to um, uh, kind of cloud services over over their switch. Basically, it's basically a um, a, um, a exchange exchange point where you're connecting, and um, you can access multiple. Um, uh, cloud service providers that way. Yeah. So, so John Yemo and I talked about this in the data center episode. Not not that different than how um, data center providers came up with with exchange rooms, meet me rooms, where you could connect to multiple other service providers or ISPs or whatever, um, instead of having to work out a connection and 
now many enterprises are multi-cloud using more than one uh, cloud service provider of some kind. Um, so, so you can just get to a, a multi-connection kind of facility rather than, uh, than figuring out all the direct connects. Right, right. Like an exchange point. It's kind of the one-to-many model. You just connect mm-hmm. here and then you have we'll all these different networks available. In before they distinguished to cloud providers versus other providers, but now it's kind of like you just, just connect to everybody. Connect to everybody. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on that note, we'll, I hope we're connecting with everybody about learning so much more about cloud. <laughs> I, I did. Thank you, Patrick, very much for the help. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good awesome. Time. Cheers. All right, so I hope Patrick helped bring a lot of clarity to exactly what the cloud is. But to drive that home, as I have in each previous episode, I'd like to close out with using an example of a YouTube creator who has made and uploaded a video to be sent to their dozens to maybe millions of fans around the world. So this time, our creator has filmed, let's say, 1.5 hours, an hour and a half of footage for their 30-minute show. Rather than tie up local bandwidth on their device, they store this video on a paid service like Google Cloud. Then they use a SaaS tool like Final Cut Pro that's hosted in the cloud to do their editing, leaving the original footage on the cloud server and saving their edited version as a new file there. During that process, our creator uses maybe some stock footage or content as a service, really. Uh, They got that from a subscription service that they uh, use with copyright-free images or footage to splice into their video. And then our creator does the same for music, using a service where creators can select from stock music with the proper licenses for their show type, all sitting on computers in someone else's facility and being connected to them by the wires of the network that we've been talking about throughout this series. Finally, as in the other episodes, the creator is going to send their video off to be stored on Google's servers and cached based on viewership. So Patrick talked about those content delivery networks. If our creator's video gets particularly popular in a certain market where Google doesn't have servers very close by, they'll use their CDN to cache that video that's closer to where those viewers are so that they have a better experience. And that would be the life cycle of our video using cloud services. All right, until next time, we'll have one more episode in this series all about corporate networks, which we call wide area networks. And then hopefully you will understand the fullness of the telecom world and how we push bits of data all around the globe. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com and we'll see you on the internet.